0: Um, uh, My colleague, Rebecca Hurstman, originally was going to host this session, but for personal reasons is unable to do that, but I want to acknowledge her many contributions to this and and the regrets that she conveys that she's not here with us. And special thanks uh, at the outset uh, for several people who've been uh, most integral to the work that we've done on this particular topic, most importantly, Chris Millard from our staff, Uh, from the International Security Program, uh, Sarah Minot. special congratulations to Kath Hicks, Melissa Dalton, and all of the International Security Program staff for pulling together this Global Security Forum here um, today. Um, Why why are we doing this? Um, We have been working for the past five years pretty actively on this topic. I, w- I think it's fair to say that while we're aware of the magnitude of the problem, Syria, as the Syria crisis uh, escalated, as war broke out in the spring of 2011 and then in the course of, very rapidly over the course of the next year, year and a half, things escalated dramatically. It, it, it brought to our attention just how egregious and flagrant uh, the violations were of the neutrality of humanitarian operations and, and the deliberate targeting of the health sector as an act of war as a strategy of war emerging and that this had profound consequences for it had profound human consequences uh, for patients for civilians for health workers it had profound consequences for infrastructure health infrastructure for the space for humanitarian organizations to operate and it had profound implications for the normative realities the Geneva Conventions and the constraints that are supposed to exist to bring about greater accountability and protections and respect of neutrality. We also began to acknowledge that this problem is one that has that has spread across multiple countries and and is a very long-term problem with 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 several factors driving it. Um, So this event today follows on the heels of multiple events Um, We've drawn over the years, and we're very grateful for the support we've received from many parts of the United States government, from uh, the Department of Defense represented here today, Mark Swain, from USUN, from the Population Refugee Migration Bureau at State Department, uh, from Jeremy Konendyke and his colleagues at USAID, the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance, from the White House and from CDC. At 11 a.m. we'll be hearing from Dr. Tom Fried, executive director of the CDC on the global health security agenda. This figures in some ways in that, and we've been very grateful to the close relationship we've had over the years on these issues. We've also benefited from many of our friends, some of whom are speaking here today, Zahir Salul from the Syrian American Medical Society, MSF has been a a particularly important partner, the International Medical Corps, WHO and the World (coughs) Bank, Many friends like Len Rubenstein, who I believe is with us today, from Johns Hopkins University. Susanna Shirkin from Physicians for Human Rights. Uh, and journalists. Um, and we've got the good fortune today that Ben Taub, a contributing writer to The New Yorker, is with us. Journalism has played such a very important role. Um, we're going to begin this morning with a three-minute uh, trailer to a video uh, documentary that we are putting together. Uh, Justin Kenny, a, an esteemed accomplished producer, uh, has joined with us and is with us today. Justin Kenny uh, has partnered with us in pulling this together. Paul Franz from our staff uh, at our ideas lab uh, as a, um, uh, an editor and producer Uh, has been uh, very integral to this, and and my colleague uh, at the Global Health Policy Center, Chris Millard. Um, You'll see that um, this is just a a, a reminder of what's what's forthcoming. It's a three minute video. Um, uh, The larger larger product will be a a documentary film that we'll issue early in 2017, approximately 40 minutes in length. This is a bit of an experiment for CSIS to be doing long-form video policy work. Uh, In April, we released a video, Ebola in America, an Epidemic of Fear, which was the first experiment. Um, We would welcome your feedback as this product evolves, particularly on placement and ways to reach new audiences. With the Ebola video, we were successful at at building interest at places like the museum, at the Smithsonian. It's going to figure in a CDC exhibit uh, in June of next year. Uh, And we've reached a variety of audiences, and of course, it's available online. But 30 or 40 minutes of video has to be gripping, and you have to have an audience that's really quite committed to this. So what I suggest we do is let's watch the video, and then I'm going to invite our our speakers to come forward and join me. I'll introduce them and then we'll move right away into hearing from them. Uh, We will have a discussion after that and we will then move into uh, uh, providing an opportunity to hear from you as part of this effort. So thank you all for joining us and again, thanks to those online. Chris, thank you so much. Why don't you key it up, please?
1: The war in Syria represents a new low for the international community. We're seeing a war without law, as well as seemingly a war without end. Uh, it's very, very striking that we're living in an age of the bombing of UN convoys, never mind the targeting of hospitals.
2: So We were so surprised and shocked when we saw our police covered with their blood Uh, and uh, giving
3: their last breaths. I don't know how to describe that. Uh, It's so hard emotionally. Um, It's like you are...
1: The war in Syria represents a new low for the international community. We're seeing a war without law, as well as seemingly a war without end. Uh, It's very, very striking that we're living in an age of the bombing of UN convoys, never mind the targeting of hospitals.
3: We were so surprised and shocked when we saw
2: our colleagues covered with their blood uh, and uh,
3: giving their last breaths. I don't know how to describe that. It's so hard emotionally. Um, It's like you are losing one of your precious in front of
2: your
0: eyes. We're witnessing a profound surge of violence against civilians, against health workers, patients, facilities, humanitarian convoys across a full spectrum of countries that is really shredding the accountability and protections that are contained in the Geneva Conventions.
2: The attack on Kunduz was a sustained attack over an hour, despite the fact that all the parties knew us at our GPS coordinate. We must say that it was our biggest loss in terms of lives. 42 people died, 14 of our staff.
1: This was a tragic mistake. This is a period when there's the danger of vacuum around the world and a danger for the abuse of power by states that are strong enough to do so. The international sense of conscience and consciousness that led to the responsibility to protect uh, in the early 2000s has certainly been eroded. People are struggling to respond.
0: They're building clinics and hospitals and underground bunkers. They're documenting these attacks and publishing them. They're taking measures to the UN Security Council.
4: Stop
2: bombing hospital. Stop bombing health workers.
0: But up to now, these measures have not had much effect in deterring attacks. But many courageous individuals and groups continue the fight. This is a fight that's going to last well into the future.
2: We believe that war is stopped at the door of our hospital. And we want to preserve that. And we want to preserve access to health care in, uh, in war zones. We need that's a battle that's worth to fight.
0: Um, let me invite our uh, speakers to come up and join us. I apologize. The sound was not what it should have been on that. Um, we can show this video again with adequate sound after the panel. Uh, so um, if, for those of you who care to wish, who wish to, to, uh, to see it again. Uh, and it's going to be, uh, it's going to be posted uh, online. Uh, on CSIS as well as YouTube, and so uh, it's accessible there as well. Thank you. So, um, let me just quickly introduce um, our speakers. Uh, Jason Cohn, to my right, uh, is the Executive Director for Doctors Without Borders uh, in the United States. He's been in that role for uh, 18 months, a little more than than 18 months. Uh, He's been very generous to us over the last several years. Uh, And this has been a tough period, Uh, not that any period is not without serious challenges for MSF, but you've uh, been in a period where uh, uh, significant attacks upon facilities uh, in Yemen most recently, um, the Kunduz attack in Afghanistan in October, continued uh, numerous attacks in Syria. Uh, and elsewhere, uh, Jason comes with a began his career in reproductive health, and began his career uh, with uh, with the uh, some training at the transnational NGO Leadership Institute at the Maxwell School, uh, Syria University. You know, you know that uh, that that school is embedded here at CSI. So, so we, you're an alumni of us, you know, in a, in a sense. Um, he's been very prominent. Uh, during the uh, West African Ebola outbreak, uh, as, as communications director, very active on, during the Haiti earthquake, um, uh, extensive involvement in looking at operations in South Sudan and in Myanmar. I think, as we talked about, the South Sudan work was was triggered by the awareness that the <coughs> environment was changing significantly and that um, uh, folks needed to take a new and and, and and very careful look at the way that operations were organized and relationships structured um, and the like. So thank you, Jason, for joining us. Uh, Mark Swain, uh, to Jason's right. Mark is the Acting Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Stability and Humanitarian Operations at the Department of Defense. Um, That places him with lead responsibilities uh, Uh, around humanitarian assistance, stability operations, peacekeeping, international rule of law, uh, prevention of atrocities, women, peace, and security. Uh, He retired from the Navy in 2008. He's occupied uh, a a long series of of, of terribly important positions relative to Africa uh, within uh, the uh, uh, policy directorate at the Department of Defense. at the Africa Command, U.S. Africa Command, um, uh, within the White House at the NSC, um, and uh, uh, we're delighted, Mark, that you could come today and be with us. Teresa Whalen uh, uh, originally was to uh, come and speak, um, the Acting Assistant, uh, Assistant Secretary uh, in that office, and um, sends her regrets. She has to be at Southern Command today, and Mark kindly agreed um, to be uh, joining us. Um, Zahir Salul, to my left, a Syrian-American critical care physician from Chicago, immediate past president of the Syrian-American Medical Society, and and remains very deeply tied to the work of SAMS, uh, was a founder and and a lead advocate in pulling together a broader coalition, the American Relief Coalition for Syria, as we'll hear from him uh, the, the level of effort uh, and mobilization and delivery of services uh, in Syria and in the neighboring countries is quite extraordinary uh, and much of that can be ascribed to his leadership, his commitment and courage over these last uh, six years. He's a practicing physician in pulmonary critical care medicine. Um, and to his left, Ben Taub, a contributing writer at the New Yorker uh, freelance contributor. Um, he's been writing on a, a, a wide array of issues. Uh, he came to our attention initially in a series of pieces that he did on Syria, um, on the medical community and the efforts underway in the medical community in Syria uh, to re- retool and to cope with the uh, the assaults and, and the requirements that were emerging as civilians were being targeted. Uh, the work that he did on the um, uh, uh, Assad files, uh, this remarkable uh, instance. We'll hear more from him uh, about this remarkable instance of a, of a, a somewhat subterranean mobilization to document uh, the abuses uh, uh, and, 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 and pull forward Syrian government uh, documents themselves into that, into that archive, which will prove to be, I believe, quite important um, into the future. I've asked each of the speakers to come prepared with some to answer some specific questions relevant to where they sit and the work that they do, and I'm going to ask Jason to 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 kick things off, and then we'll move to Mark, Zaher, and Ben, and then we'll come back for a further discussion, and we'll um, we'll come to you for your comments and questions. So welcome all of you, Uh, Jason. uh, Why don't you kick things off?
5: Thank you, Stephen, and thanks to CSIS for making space for this critical issue. As you noted, unfortunately, we've had to have a lot of panels on this uh, on this topic in the last uh, last couple of years. Um, it's interesting of note. I think during the keynote address uh, earlier this morning, uh, former Secretary of Defense uh, Panetta, in talking about sort of national security issues, talked about the importance of of drawing lines and making sure that lines, certain lines, uh, when it comes to peace and security, are, are not crossed. Um, and for a very long time, uh, the international community has drawn a very clear and bright line around attacking healthcare and hospitals in conflict. Um, but unfortunately, um, we've seen in recent years a bit of a, in some cases, a race to the bottom in terms of a lack of respect for that very specific and bright line uh, of not attacking hospitals, uh, threatening uh, doctors, and, and, and hurting patients uh, in hospitals. Attacks on the medical mission uh, continue with impunity from places as well as Yemen to Syria. We're really facing a, a systemic problem. Uh, in Syria, the bombing of health structures in rebel-held territories is an integrated component of the war strategy pursued by the government of Syria and its allies, such as Russia. And to be sure, opposition groups operating in the country also demonstrate very little respect uh, for the medical mission. Uh, in Yemen, attacks on protected medical facilities and people are part and parcel also of that all-out war there, uh, characterized by, also by somewhat of a negligence and loose rules of engagements by the, the Saudi-led coalition, and, as well as its opponents on the ground. Uh, some states, the rules of engagements and, and protocols surrounding the conduct of hostilities have also eroded the protection of health structures. Uh, the question, I think, at the beginning, though, is are things worse than ever? Um, it remains really difficult to speak about trends as we really lack historical perspective when looking uh, more than a few years back. uh, We remember the attacks that have happened in places like Afghanistan, Vietnam, uh, Bosnia, and elsewhere, Chechnya, Uh, the Safeguarding Healthcare Coalition, International Committee of the Red Cross, World Health Organization have all made recent efforts uh, to try and document the extent of these attacks. uh, And they're doing uh, very good work to try and to fill that void. Uh, My organization has documented at least 50 attacks on 21 of our facilities or supported structures in 2016 alone. Uh, And then last year, there were 106 attacks on 75 MSF and MSF-supported hospitals. 63 of those attacks took place in Syria, five in Yemen, five in Ukraine, one in Afghanistan, and one in Sudan. So you see multiple attacks on the same structures happening in Syria. Uh, So this is really, really a carnage that we're seeing playing out it's an incredibly alarming rate of these attacks in the last years, and we're really at a, a, quite a deadly impasse. Um, as a medical organization on the front line, along with other groups like SAMS and others who work, uh, work in the field, um, you know we no longer can assume that fully functioning hospitals in which patients are, are fighting for their lives are out of bounds. Uh, hospitals and patients have been really dragged onto the battlefield, as we've seen quite egregiously. These attacks take different forms bombing, shelling, looting of facilities or ambulances. Some cases it's it's direct targeting of uh, facilities as part of a a war effort. In other cases it's because of indiscriminate attacks that have failed to take the necessary precautions that are outlined in the Geneva Conventions to avoid harm to facilities and and, and health workers and patients. And we see just direct violence inflicted on health workers independent of an attack on a hospital militaries uh, or armed forces taking over hospitals and fighting in and around these structures. Um, Obviously, we're incredibly outraged uh, by these grave breaches that we've seen, and we've spoken out quite loudly uh, over the past past several years on that, uh, most recently at the UN Security Council uh, when Resolution uh, 2286 was passed uh, back in May. While we see these aerial attacks as some of the most visible uh, expressions of this assault on health care in places like Afghanistan, Syria, and Yemen, as I mentioned, uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, my colleagues in the field is, and predominantly actually national health workers are, are really at the greatest threat uh, from these kinds of attacks, kidnapped, assaulted, threatened, harassed just for trying to provide medical care um, we 've seen MSF hospitals robbed and ransacked, equipment looted, or destroyed, patients killed in the beds of our hospitals. Um, and this is across a wide spectrum of places as well. the Congo, Central African Republic, Lebanon, Honduras, Myanmar. We see places where uh, where combatants are really trying to threaten uh, the way that uh, doctors and health workers practice care in terms of on the basis of needs. So really attacking the idea of the principle of impartial medical care, the triage of patients based solely on need. Um, we've repeatedly called on on states um, to enact the, the very clear prohibitions. Um, on, on these attacks that are in international humanitarian law in the Geneva Conventions that we've seen. Um, the legal bar for determining the loss of protection of medical care is very high and for good reason. Health care is really the last line of humanity in an otherwise inhumane setting of war. But in practice, the bar is clearly very low, given the, the, the widespread attacks that we've seen. And sometimes often unverified intelligence or, or mere claims that a hospital lost its protection is justification enough for attacking it. So what are the consequences? Um, regardless of whether attacks on medical facilities are intentional, reckless acts, or horrible mistakes, it really is the same in effect at the end of the day. The dead and the wounded have in the aftermath of these attacks, but more, probably even more shockingly, is the invisible bodies that pile up in the weeks after, the, the patients that lost, that we can't see, that we can no longer treat. The tolls are never limited to the immediate casualties, the loss of things like trauma care. There's also the loss of health services at the precise moment when care is most needed in a war zone. Expectant mothers die in childbirth. Children go unvaccinated or perish from treatable diseases like malaria or even simple things like diarrhea. Each new attack also depletes the ranks of local medical workers. We know they are the ones that most often are the victims. Um, Yet they stay against all odds, as we've seen in places like East Aleppo. Uh, under incredible circumstances. And overall, it creates just a, 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 a real sense of fear. You know, we have patients who don't want to stay in the hospital uh, to complete their care. They want to get out there because they're out of there as quickly as possible because they know now there is a target uh, on, on health structures in many of the conflicts today. Um, so, uh, Steve asked me to speak a little bit about what are some of the most critical steps the international community can do to reverse this dangerous trend. Well, frankly, it comes down to really just uh, implementing existing bodies of law. Uh, Nothing new needs to be written here. Uh, No new treaties need to be passed, conventions signed. It's all there in the Geneva Conventions. It's incredibly unambiguous. Uh, The protection of hospitals and health workers and patients is guaranteed in the international humanitarian law. And as I mentioned, the UN Security Council unanimously reaffirmed these protections with the passage of Resolution 2286 on May 3rd, 2016. So what we need is for those laws to be respected for, and for this security resolution to be implemented. So basically drawing, again, a, a really bright and red line uh, against the attack, attacks on hospitals, making sure that those, uh, that idea, that concept, those protections are really codified in rules of engagement, standard operating procedures, and the practice of militaries in conflict, whether they be state actors or non-state actors. But when these attacks occur, and we've seen them obviously happen in an incredibly high rate, we do need to see independent and investigations, and we do need to see accountability. Oftentimes, or at least as the universal rule, when an incident occurs, it should neither be the responsibility of the victims nor the perpetrators to establish and qualify the facts. But as of today, suspected perpetrators get away with self-investigating, and there's no independent follow-up for attacks. These ongoing attacks, they really demand accountability if they are ever going to stop. They must be credibly investigated. Investigations carried out by perpetrators of attacks, they're welcome, but they're in a, insufficient. We can't have this continued situation. There really is a need for a dedicated mechanism to put in place to create political pressure for accountability. There is the International Humanitarian Fact-Finding Commission that was created to investigate these kinds of breaches of, of law, international humanitarian law. It's never been put into action. It was never activated. Um, We've also, as an organization, and we we said this at the Security Council, called on the UN Secretary General to establish a special representative on attacks on the medical mission to continue to track and give visibility at the highest level. At the end of the day, protecting the wounded and the sick and those who care for them is the last real front line for humanity and the otherwise inhumane and brutal reality of war. We're really failing failing those on the front line. Uh, States are continuing to to, to proliferate these attacks, and, and it really needs to to come to an end, but I'll, I'll stop right there, Steve.
0: Thank you
6: very much, Jason. Mark. <clears throat> thank you, Steve. Um, <clears throat> again, thank you for uh, inviting me here to talk because it's very important for uh, the Department of Defense to reemphasize the importance of international humanitarian law and how we uh, conform and comply with that. Um, after the tragic mistake of Kunduz, uh, that was a mistake made by our Department of Defense um, that, it, that uh, resulted in the uh, attack against the medical facility in Kunduz, and we claimed ownership and responsibility for that. And I think that, as Jason talked about, all of those many and too many numerous attacks on health facilities uh, throughout the world since then or in, in, even some before then, I think it's incumbent upon the international community to realize and put pressure on those responsible. And because we took responsibility for that, and uh, I'll talk about some of the things that, uh, one of the things that uh, Stephen asked us to do was, what, what did we do to mitigate? What do we, how do we go forward? And that's what I'll uh, focus my remarks on today. Um, I want to emphasize again that we're strongly committed to upholding the international humanitarian law and protection of civilians, which includes impartial humanitarian personnel and facilities. Since the tragic mistake of Kunduz, we have taken proactive measures to demonstrate our commitment to international humanitarian law, including development of best practices that often exceed IHL requirements that can be used examples for other states. For example, when participating at the World Humanitarian Summit this last year in May, the United States joined 48 UN member states in signing a declaration affirming the importance and adherence to IHL including the protection of humanitarian personnel, medical facilities, internally displaced persons, and unhindered humanitarian access. President Obama also signed an executive order this year that memorializes best practices developed by the Department of Defense that the U.S. government currently implements to protect civilians in the context of operations involving the use of force. The Department of Defense recently issued a statement of principles, and that was a direct result of uh, the tragic mistake of Kunduz and those principles on the protection of medical care during the armed conflict. These principles reflect the existing legal protections and are drawn principally from the Geneva Convention. Um, We take great care in our operations and training to mitigate the likelihood of civilian harm we train our forces on civilian harm mitigation and continually seek to improve the implementation of our best practices. We also developed a robust system investigating credible reports of civilian harm so that we take more appropriate steps to address such, such incidents. Our training starts um, even before you, when I first joined the Navy, I flew in planes and I was in training in Pensacola, Florida, I was in a plane that did not have ordnance. But the first navigation route that I flew, they put a big circle around uh, a uh, facility and said, that's a medical facility. If you fly over that, you will get a down on this flight, and you you won't graduate from flight school. So we learned early on, no one came and briefed to me, this is international humanitarian law, it was just that inherent understanding of who is a combatant, who is a non-combatant, and that in this uh, business of uh, the Department of Defense, we have to adhere to that and understand that, so I I say that to the people who have never served in the military to think, how could this happen? Uh, This was a mistake in Kunduz, and I also want to explain that when you train in the military, um, you get international humanitarian law training later on, When when I was in A6s and F14s, before we went on deployment, we've got lots of briefs of what we can and cannot do. But that understanding and training and respect for the medical facility and non-combatants is inherent in in our training throughout the military. So I just want to highlight that point, because I think it's important to realize that uh, this was going on for years, and that what happened in Kunduz was a mistake. Um, So for our mitigation and reduction, um, what have we done with that? Um, we certainly comply with the principle of distinction and to respect the principles of humanity, neutrality, and impartiality, and independence for the provision of humanitarian assistance. Um, efforts to respect and protect impartial medical care during the armed conflict um, with the basic humanitarian concept of distinction, parties that to an armed conflict must distinguish between combatants and not combatants And for more than a decade of contemporary conflict, DOD and the U.S. government writ large has sought to build and institutionalize best practices that go well beyond baselines of international humanitarian law. Uh, I talked about that the president has signed an executive order for the civilian casualties, and we also um, work to uh, have best practices to protect civilians in our operations and direct the sustainment of these measures in present and future operations. So I think this current administration has done a lot with executive orders and uh, statements to highlight uh, the importance of protecting civilians and uh, non-combatants. I want to stress that uh, the executive order provides an example that can serve to inform the relevant practices of other nations. So as we talk about the protection of civilians and, and non-combatants, we now as a government have a document that other countries can look at, and uh, when you look at the Geneva Convention and all the international humanitarian law, you have to be a lawyer to sort through and sift through everything between our EO and civilian casualties, uh, protection of civilians, and from our statement of principles for medical facilities. Um, I think we tried to highlight um, like one-stop shopping areas of, of our principles and our values for our government and department. The Statement of Principles, as I talked about on October 3rd, 2016, this year um, the Secretary of Defense issued the Statement of Principles related to the protection of medical care provided by impartial humanitarian organizations during armed conflict, that's the full name, it's on our website, there's a link on www.defense.gov, it's under News and Publications, we can give that to you if you'd like to see it, and that memo went to all the services, DOD agencies and combatant commands directing them to ensure the orders, rules, and engagement, and directives, regulations, policies, and procedures are consistent with the principles. We realized after that unfortunate mistake of Kunduz, we had lots of briefings with MSF, with non-governmental organizations, and they understood that Kunduz was a mistake, but the, the clear message to us as a department is, what can we do more? How can we help Only not only our own military highlight the importance for this, but show a, an example of what we can use with other militaries and other governments to highlight? So that's, what, that's why the Statement of Principles came about. We didn't come up with anything new. It's all the things that we were already doing and uh, inherent to international humanitarian law. But it highlighted to us for us to stress the importance to our force of how to conduct and, and operate, and also it's something we can use with our partners. So uh, I'd like to uh, say that um, the cooperation, as Stephen mentioned, that uh, I worked on Africa, I helped establish Africa Command, and uh, there's a lot of concerns with that. I'm not here to talk about Africa, but sometimes uh, MSF and other NGOs don't always want to deal with the military. And then uh, when the unfortunate Ebola outbreak occurred in West Africa, uh, it was, MSF was one of in, the many NGOs that said, we need the Department of Defense to help in this. And the Department of Defense uh, came and helped in, in Liberia and West Africa with the support and uh, concurrence. So I would say, at that point, our relationship between DoD and MSF was at its height. And then the unfortunate incident of Kunduz Put a strain on that relationship, but I say at the headquarters level um, between the Department of Defense and many NGOs, we have a a greater understanding through all of these activities, good and bad, um, and lessons learned that we have that we uh, will move forward on. So I just wanted to highlight that. I also want to highlight again the deconfliction and working with humanitarian organizations. Uh, The Department of Defense works closely with the UN. OCHA, the Office of Coordination for Humanitarian Affairs, and whenever there's a, f- a focal point of civ-mil coordination, it's with us, with OCHA, and uh, OCHA has communication channels with our combatant commands, and try to help, uh, and many of our combatant commands, where we have areas of operations, are working with non-governmental organizations, so that uh, MSF and other um, NGOs can highlight where they're at, where they're operating, with, especially with medical facilities, so we can increase and enhance uh, that communication so that mistakes don't happen. So I'll leave it there, and thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mark. Zaher salute.
3: Uh, Well, good morning. I'm really honored to be um, here and uh, among this uh, esteemed panel. And uh, I recognize my friend, uh, Len Rubinstein, from uh, Johns Hopkins. And thank you, Steve, for inviting me. And I think CSIS was the first uh, think tank that uh, addressed the attacks on healthcare in Syria in 2012, early in Mm -hmm. the crisis, when no one was paying attention Mm -hmm. to that. And um, I'm Syrian-American, so most of us uh, in the Syrian-American community are traumatized because of what's happening in Syria. And um, I wake up um, in the middle of the night, and I tweet at 3 AM um, about um, attacks on healthcare facilities in Syria. I remember the first time that I tweeted about uh, chemical weapon used uh, in Syria in December of 2012. And I contacted the National Security Council at that time, and they said that we are very concerned. Let us uh, uh, know what happens. Um, I remember the first time I tweeted about the attack in Ghouta in August 23rd, 2013. I communicated with the National Security Council at that time about this uh, sering gas attack and the fact that we have influx of large number of patients who are suffocating with very limited capacity in East Al Ghouta that has been under siege for the past uh, couple of years by the Syrian government, and they were very concerned. Um, I remember one time tweeting about uh, attacks by uh, ISIS or ISIL uh, on um, a medical facility that SAMS has in the city of Mari, north of Aleppo, and the fact that the doctors over there were very concerned that they will be slaughtered by ISIS. and. Uh, Actually, our National Security Council and Ambassador Power paid personal attention to that attack at that time and it was averted, uh, luckily, and the um, uh, physicians were saved. Um, So to me, it's very personal. Um, I think most of us uh, now seeing what's happening in Aleppo, especially the ones who've been in Aleppo. I've been in Aleppo five times. Last time was just before the siege, this coming siege. Uh, and uh, I worked in an underground hospital uh, that's called M10. I think Ben covered that hospital in his article. Um, it's uh, built underground for protection because it was bombed a dozen times in the past four years. And that's why you go at 20 meters underground and you see doctors and nurses and emergency room and uh, ICU and operating rooms the, similar to any other hospital in Chicago. I practice in one of the best hospitals in Chicago but it is underground, and um, we saw uh, patients, mostly civilians, at that time uh, when I was there. And uh, I I remember this uh, woman, her name was Fatima. Uh, She was pregnant in her third month, and um, uh, she was in her house, and uh, when a barrel bomb fell in the house and and, uh, killed her older son, Abdu, who was nine, and younger daughter, Iraf, who was three, Um, and uh, she had internal bleeding, and she lost her unborn child ended up on life support and uh, she had only one surviving son Mahmoud uh, who I saw in the emergency room and I was trying to to talk to him and he could not smile Um, and every person I saw in in, in that hospital was traumatized including the medical staff and so you know this is something that is uh, affecting of course uh, not only patients but also uh, medical community I spoke with one of the nurses a couple of days ago in Aleppo. I don't know if she's still alive or not. Her name is Baraa, 24 years old, uh, who did not be a nur- wasn't a nurse before the crisis. She was a medical student in Western Aleppo. She had to move to Eastern Aleppo because her family is there, and uh, because she could not continue her medical school, she had to go to a crash course in nursing, uh, which SAMS, my organization, have provided. We had a nursing school that is built underground in Eastern Aleppo for protection. And uh, she completed her course and became uh, a nurse in a hospital called M2 Hospital. And these are code names for hospitals that are already established. These are hospitals that had been in Aleppo before the crisis. And I visited seven of them. Each one of them was bombed multiple times before the crisis. And sometimes we have these trolls on Twitter who will tell you uh, how many times this hospital was bombed. You've mentioned that it was bombed before. When a hospital is bombed, it's not destroyed from the first time. So the Syrian regime and the Russians lately have been using much more extensive power to destroy completely these hospitals. M10 hospitals was bombed with cluster bombs, with incendiary bombs, and eventually with what's called bunker buster bombs. So it completely erased the hospital from the ground. This is a hospital that has been providing 4,000 life-saving surgeries every year before it was completely destroyed. So Baraa told me that uh, right now the situation is beyond description. She said death is better than what we are living through. Uh, Aleppo has been under siege for four months and a half. No food, no medicine, uh, no diesel fuel, no fruits, no vegetables, no baby milk. uh, So people are starving. And they are bombed every day by not only the Syrian regime but also by the Russians. And she told me that we had only one small facility left and we we are crowded. Uh, We had 500 patients uh, one day, and we had uh, surgeons who are doing operating on the patients on the floor of the emergency room, opening their bellies. Um, And we had patients who are dying, not only because of injuries, but also because of extreme cold, because it's cold in Aleppo right now, and they do not have enough blanket to cover these patients. And she said the worst thing that happened to any person in Aleppo right now is to be injured, because being injured means that you're gonna die. Even if you have a patient or access to a patient uh, if a physician or a nurse who will treat your wound, the likelihood that you will get infection or uh, die from cold or from malnutrition or um, bleeding uh, and you don't have enough supplies at that time is very high. Um, I was looking at some of the pictures yesterday from uh, this group of civilians who were fleeing Aleppo and they were bombed while they were fleeing. And there was this child who was 12 years old who was wearing a red coat and, um, and she, had, she died, and she had a broken leg. And uh, you know, I, I look at this picture, and I, you know, I wrote in my Facebook that uh, death is probably more merciful than the empty words that we are hearing and tweeting about, that we care about civilians and we care about health care. Because to me, uh, in spite of all of the panels that we're doing in the last uh, five years, nothing has changed in Syria. If anything, it's getting worse. So we're, to ta- we're talking about <coughs> systematic attacks on health care and numbers do not mean anything, by the way. Uh, you know, we're talking about all of these numbers. Physicians for Human Rights have documented by the details, the attacks on healthcare facilities and doctors in Syria. More than 750 healthcare workers were killed. More than uh, 350 or 60 hospitals were bombed. Uh, every 17 hours, there is healthcare facility that is bombed in Syria in the last two months or so. In the last 144 days, 143 facilities and healthcare workers were attacked in Syria. Every 60 hours, there is one healthcare professional who is targeted in Syria. And in spite of all of these numbers, in this post-number or post-fact or post-truth word, uh, there is no action. Um, uh, How did that start? I mean, I I, I remember in in, in August of 1988, uh, we had... uh, graduation ceremony from damascus university medical school and at that time i had to give the graduation speech Uh, and uh, there was this uh, person who was tall and uh, uh, at that time he was not well known i mean he was known to be the son of the president but he graduated in the same class and he uh, took the hippocratic oath that uh, we as healers should uh, care for all people who seek treatment whether they are our friends or foes um, and uh, he received an award for his uh, quote unquote leadership. Um, he happened to become the president of Syria, Bashar al Assad. Uh, at that time, he was not, not known to be ruthless or brutal. Uh, I had uh, several meetings with him when he became a president. Uh, at one point, he said he wished that he would have been a, pre- a physician, not a president. Uh, at one point, he said that uh, I asked him whether he will be introducing democratic reforms in Syria. He said, Syrians are not ready for democracy. Um, And I think he still have the same views at this point. When you listen to his speeches, uh, besides the fact that he has no remorse to what he has done in Syria, and the fact that he has no sympathy to the civilians and the refugees, he uses medical terms uh, in his speeches, uh, unfortunately. This is a person that is a physician, uh, graduated from Damascus Medical School, who had training uh, to be an eye physician in United Kingdom, um, and I remember visiting an eye facility in Aleppo that is underground. And many of the victims were uh, uh, children who had uh, eye um, uh, problems because of shrapnels in their eyes. Um, so he uses these medical terms in his speeches, the fact that there are uh, 70,000 germs, he said in one time in Syria, that they need to be eradicated. And he, one time he said that if you are a, phys- a surgeon and you have blood on your hand, it doesn't mean that you are a murderer. So um, it looks like he believes that he's uh, fighting the good fight. Uh, And I think what what started in Syria, the fact that uh, the government taking cues, by the way, from our own government uh, attacking, uh, using the card of um, fighting terrorism to terrorize civilians and to attack healthcare professionals and take it as a blank check to kill everyone who they perceive as a terrorist, uh, including hospitals and doctors and nurses. And I think this is something that we really have to care about because people and countries take use from us. And if we use fighting terrorism to attack doctors and nurses and hospitals, then other countries will follow our lead. So uh, I think Leon Banata in the morning session was talking about the fact that we have to provide in the next phase more leadership and less talk. I think that's really what we need to focus on, more leadership. Uh, moral leadership, because that's the, the, the fact that the United States was great and is great, is because of the moral leadership that we had in the world. And right now we are lacking this moral, moral uh, leadership. Uh, I remember uh, Dr. Hassan Araj I met uh, in uh, what's called the Central Cave Hospital in Syria. This is a hospital that is dug in the heart of mountain uh, in the north of Hama for protection, and also because the village that dr hassan Al-Araj, who's a cardiologist in that city uh, refused to have a hospital in the in the village they said if we have a hospital in the village that means we will be bombed uh, and we don't want that to happen so he went to this mountain and he dug this hospital in the heart of mountain inside the mountain you think that you are in the middle of um, one of the most advanced hospital this hospital that was built with the support of sam's here in american medical society Uh, But outside, you will see a mountain with no uh, people around it. And this hospital was bombed uh, lately. And Dr. Hassan Aaraj was killed uh, in his car while he was leaving the hospital to his home. And he was the only cardiologist in town. We are talking about the global refugee crisis. Global refugee crisis is because of the attacks on healthcare. When you do not have a doctor in town, you will not have town. People leave if they don't have physicians or nurses who are taking care of their children when they are sick. When you do not have a nurse in a neighborhood, you will not have a neighborhood. The fact that we have five million refugees from Syria is because of this attacks on healthcare, on schools, on fruit markets, on civilians. And in order to um, take care of this refugee crisis, and we don't, Syrians do not want resettlement of refugees in United States. Uh, They care about our, fears of the uh, aliens, but they want these people to stay in Syria, but providing protection for them. If we can provide protection, safe zones for civilians in Syria by protecting their hospitals and their schools and their neighborhoods and their fruit markets, they will not leave Syria. So I think President Trump in one of the uh, 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 election uh, debates, he mentioned that he uh, is um, uh, one of his policies in Syria is to provide safe zones. I think this is a welcoming policy, and I think uh, having safe zones in Syria is something that we are calling for, especially safe zones for hospitals and doctors to uh, to practice medicine. Um, we had in the Syrian American Medical Society to deal with all of these challenges, and uh, we felt that it's our duty as um, physicians, as humanitarians, as p- people who came from Syria to do what we can to provide health care to the civilians in Syria and to be the advocates for the doctors and nurses under attack in Syria. Uh, We started cross-border relief from Turkey to northern Syria, from Jordan to southern Syria, with the help of the Turkish authorities, the Jordanian authorities, with the help of our State Department. We had to work within coalitions like Safeguarding Healthcare and uh, with our friends in MSF and other uh, international NGOs like IMC and IRC. Um, We had to use technology, so we have telemedicine that connects hospitals in Syria and under siege areas. We have one million people under siege in Syria, by the way, by their own government. Uh, Hospitals inside Syria connected to uh, specialists in the United States through using telemedicine. And simple uh, applications like WhatsApp and Viber and and so forth, where um, every day I look in the morning and I see these questions and pictures of x-rays and CT scans from doctors inside Syria. Um, Asking questions that I have this patient who had bleeding into the brain. What should I do uh, with? And then we have doctors from United States who are responding to them. Why didn't you give this medicine or that medicine? Unfortunately in the last few weeks, especially in the Aleppo, the options for treatment is very limited because even if you tell them do this or that they do not have access to medical supplies or to medications. Well, I, I think I can stop at this point, and maybe we can address other issues.
0: Thank you. Thank, you. thank you very much, awesome. Saya. Ben.
3: I'm uh, delighted to be here, and thank you for bringing me in.
7: I also am very glad that Dr. Sahlou, uh detailed some of the horrors in Aleppo and in other parts of Syria, because the situation that he was describing is something that I'm going to address in a slightly different context, which is that everything he described is a war crime. Um, Uh, Basically, international criminal law is a fairly new endeavor. It, It was conceived really by a British lawyer following the horrors of the First World War. A man named Hugh Bellett spent years beseeching the League of Nations to establish an international criminal court at The Hague to prosecute war crimes and what he called all offenses committed contrary to the laws of humanity. And for Bello, allowing the outrages committed during the war to go unaddressed was as dangerous to humanity and civilization as the atrocities themselves, but his efforts fell short. It took, another, it took the Holocaust for the international community to set up the world's first international war crimes tribunal, uh, the Nuremberg Trial, and another half century of atrocities in South America, Asia, Africa, and Eastern Europe for his vision to be fully realized. In 1998, uh, after Widespread killing in Bosnia and Rwanda, the UN drafted a treaty in Rome, which created um it was called the Rome Statute, which created the International Criminal Court. And in theory, the UN believes the very existence of such a court would give pause to dictators and warlords prone to brutality because perpetrators living anywhere in the world could be hunted until their dying breaths. As we have seen recently, uh, that... Um, Effectively, this hasn't worked because international criminal law is a relatively new and fragile endeavor, and to a disturbing extent, its application is contingent on geopolitics. Um, If a country, for instance, has not ratified uh, the Rome Statute, then the ICC has no immediate automatic jurisdiction over crimes committed in the territory, which is why uh, Syria has not ratified the ICC. Uh, document, the Rome Statute. Neither has Russia, neither has the United States. Uh, As a result, the International Criminal Court has no automatic jurisdiction over crimes committed in that territory, and the only means to uh, refer jurisdiction are through the UN Security Council. But if anybody vetoes a measure to refer jurisdiction within the Security Council, then uh, there is no jurisdiction granted, which is why in 2014, when the Russians blocked it, there's still, the ICC has no jurisdiction to, uh, the measure it proposed was to allow the ICC to investigate all war crimes committed by all parties at a point in the war where it was very, very clear that war crimes were being committed by several parties, um, most vociferously by the government, but also by the Islamic State, also by certain rebel groups. The challenge with uh, prosecuting rebel groups is that there is less of a clear chain of command and international criminal law is interested in high and highest level offenders. And it may be difficult when you don't have a clear chain of command to prosec- uh, to, to get the interest of, of the international court uh, for some of the crimes committed on the ground. But in, in the case of Syria, at this point today, the body of court-ready evidence against top officials in the Syrian regime is, uh, including Assad himself, uh, there are documents with his signature on them that implicate him in some of the crimes, which I'll detail in a moment, the body of evidence is more complete and damning than has previously been collected during an active conflict, any active conflict in history. And yet there is no clear path to prosecution. So what are we talking about when I say body of evidence? Essentially, one of the challenges for, for example, uh, prosecuting the uh, atrocities, the targeting, systematic targeting of hospitals in Aleppo, is that it's pattern evidence. Uh, this clear pattern that uh, they are being attacked. It is clearly part of a plan, but you don't have individual criminal responsibility. Who do you charge with those crimes? Um, If you have evidence that it's a specific branch of the Air Force Intelligence, perhaps you can trace it up to Jamil Hassan, who's the head of Air Force Intelligence in Syria. But you need some sort of internal regime documentation, ideally, to be able to trace uh, crimes on the ground that are systematic and widespread to somebody who can actually be charged with the crime. Um, And so that's where uh, the kind of evidence that was collected by a group of war crimes investigators who I profiled earlier this year uh, comes into play. This is a group called, basically in and late 2011, Um, a former investigator for the International Criminal Court and several other tribunals named Bill Wiley was approached by the British government, and he was asked if he could uh, train some Syrian activists to document um, human rights abuses in Syria, um, film airstrikes on hospitals in civilian areas, and this sort of thing. And he said, no, I have no interest in doing that because um, it's going to put them in danger and it actually is kind of while it's useful for messaging and getting attention to these crimes, it's actually useless in court. And you're, you're going to have all these young guys going out and, and young men and women uh, blo- getting blown out because they're getting too close to the action, filming things that don't actually serve a trial, because proof that an airstrike happened on a hospital does not give you uh, individual criminal responsibility, and you can't actually charge someone with the crime. So instead, he trained these activists and lawyers, um, all Syrian, to collect the kinds of evidence that would actually serve a trial. He told them uh, they forged relationships with rebel groups that, at the time in, in early 2012 and th- uh, 13, especially were taking large swaths of territory from government troops, uh, and the government's uh, the government uh, agents were intelligence agencies were leaving behind their buildings, their headquarters with vast troves of documents. Um, some were intelligence communicated, communications coming straight from Damascus. Um, others were uh, these security committee, committee meeting minutes from governor security committees that had been uh, following off of orders from Damascus. And then he also collected, uh, Wiley's group also got a hold of a large collection of documents that had been smuggled out by a mole within Assad's highest level security committee who has gone public um, and he now lives in, uh, in Turkey. And we, they were able to rebuild the chain of command and trace the systematic torture and murder Uh, After smuggling 600,000 Syrian government documents out of security and intelligence facilities, Wiley's group, the Commission for International Justice and Accountability, was able to trace the systematic torture and murder of tens of thousands of people from uh, detention facilities in Syria to an order that was uh, drafted by Assad's highest level security committee, um, approved of and signed by Assad himself, and then sent down the chain of command for implementation in distant provinces. So that's the kind of evidence that actually serves. And the important point here is that the most incriminating evidence against the regime has been produced within the regime's own immense bureaucracy, not just these documents. But you also have the Caesar photograph collection, which I'm sure many of you know about, uh, which I'll I leave for another time um, to, to sort of move along. Um, now, an- another important point, as as, um, as Jason Cohn uh, ex- uh, mentioned, the Geneva Conventions, uh, the Rome Statute, are completely unambiguous about what a war crime is. It is not hard to read the list and say, oh, there's there's really not much question about whether something applies. For example, There's two broad categories. Crimes against humanity, which this was what the ICC should have jurisdiction over, broadly speaking. Crimes against humanity is a set of acts committed as part of a widespread or systematic attack directed against any civilian population. And that includes torture, murder, rape, enforced disappearance, illegal imprisonment, persecution, and other inhumane acts. There are a few other crimes against humanity, but those are the ones that are clearly happening in Syria. There's no question about this stuff. Uh, War crimes uh, apply only during an act of conflict, of course, because by definition it has to be committed during a war, whereas crimes against humanity can be committed even if there isn't a war. Uh, And that includes some of the ones that um, uh, the ICC ought to be afforded jurisdiction over in Syria, Uh, would be willful killing, wanton and excessive uh, destruction of property beyond military necessity, compelling prisoners of war to fight on behalf of their captors, intentional airstrikes directed against civilians, intentional attacks directed against humanitarian personnel uh, um, installations and vehicles, bombardment of undefended villages or buildings, murdering uh, prisoners of war, intentionally attacking markets, schools, and hospitals, mutilation, pillaging, the use of chemical weapons, including asphyxiating gases, and intentionally starving civilians as a method of warfare while willfully impeding relief supplies. All of which is happening uh, throughout the country, but very, very, very obviously and very well documented in Aleppo. Um, Another crime against humanity, that this word is often used but then put with Great caveats uh, in, in um, when, whenever someone says, oh, the crime of extermination appears to be happening in Syria. Uh, often journalistic publications will sort of mention that and then say, you know, according to somebody, some, and, and frame it as an opinion. But if you actually look at the Rome Statute, extermination is very clear it's deprivation of access to food and medicine calculated <laughs> to bring about the destruction of part of the population. There's no question again that this is happening on a widespread and systematic scale. So, what w- the problem is that without any jurisdiction and with, uh, basically international humanitarian law, international criminal law, functionally doesn't apply. And when the Rome Statute, uh, while it was drafted as a guideline of exactly what you cannot do in war. When there's no path to prosecution, it seems by the Syrian government and by the Russian uh, military to have been taken as a guideline of exactly how best and most efficiently to exterminate your opponent with no consequences. And what we're seeing now, because there are no consequences, the the broader consequences of having no consequences that we are eroding the credibility of the court uh, by uh, Russia's political obstruction at the UN Security Council level and that really is part of what feels this year very much to be a sustained attack on basic human principles and values that underlie the institution itself. Um, if you create the sense that everything is too confusing to, uh, to prosecute, to, to find any truth within it, claim that in spite of uh, all sorts of evidence that none of it is, is sufficient or all of it is propaganda, uh, then there's, there's really no clear path. Um, by calling into question the belief that justice can be defined and applied fairly and universally, uh, that there is such a thing as truth that is not propaganda, that there are basic human values, that the uh, application of justice is anything but political, and to create a climate of confusion, to bring about a climate of impunity. Um, And basically, if human rights don't matter, then what does? A recent example, um, last week or a couple of weeks ago, Putin announced uh, that Russia was withdrawing from the ICC, which they were never part of the ICC in the first place. So uh, this created a bunch of headlines that uh, said that Russia's withdrawing. It, it, it allowed him to say Putin to say that uh, the court was being used politically and, and uh, had no credibility in the first place. And then, as a result, created um, triggered other uh, defections like Duterte. Uh, in the Philippines, piggybacked off Putin's announcement and said that uh, the Philippines agrees that and, uh, that the ICC has no credibility. Um, so basically, as in summary, the Western countries in the UN have spent the past five and a half years condemning atrocity after atrocity to no avail, and with justice so limited by geopolitics, who in Syria is afraid of international law?
0: Thank you. Well, you've all been very patient. Those are four uh, powerful. Uh, presentations we have only a few minutes left and I want to offer you the opportunity to offer some comments and questions and so what we'll do is we'll collect four or five of those and then come back for our panelists to close Uh, we I believe we have microphones to share and my one request is keep your comment or question to a single comment or question and keep it very short uh, yeah Len Start here and speak into the microphone, please.
2: Hi, thank you. This is a question from Mr. Swain. It's really true that the U.S. has provided a lot of leadership since the Kunduz attack, but there's been a concern that the order, the the principal statement from October, focuses exclusively on humanitarian organizations. As Jason said, most of the attacks are on not on local health providers, and as Zahir said, it's the excuse is counterterrorism, And there's a real need for US leadership to make it clear that counterterrorism cannot be an excuse for attacks on civilian doctors. And so I urge you to consider expanding that statement, which is now so narrow, it's great to protect MSF and International Medical Corps, that's fantastic, but the local Victims, the local doctors and nurses who are the majority of the victims, are not protected by that statement. And we need that We need that because of the counterterrorism uh, excuse for attacks, and I'd love if you could address that.
0: Thank you. Hold for a moment here. Over here, please. Um, Dean is right behind you. Thank you. Please identify yourself. Yes, then...
4: hi, I'm Judy Seltzer, a principal with Management Sciences for Health in Boston. Um, It's a shame somebody from the World Health Organization isn't up there because, in a way, um, they're a perpetrator here. Um, We deal with health system strengthening. I'm a public health professional. And what happens is we come up with
0: Please be very succinct.
4: With the current model um, of the global health security agenda, which has a number of technical areas and foci, it's very much obscuring human atrocities. It deals with One Health, with animals and humans and disease outbreaks and their prevention. But my concern is, what do you think we can do about creating greater collaboration between those working in defense and those working in public health so that we speak the same vernacular? Because what you can't count, you can't actually have a case definition. Thank you.
0: Right here. And then Keith, we'll come back to you, Keith. Yes, please identify yourself. Please be very succinct.
4: Francis Vesey with ANSWER. Uh, I've often thought that the Syria conflict um, is kind of a prime example of no good options. Um, What are some positive steps that you think um, that we can take going forward to shape the conflict in a way where there's kind of a way out that would be positive?
0: Thank you. Over here. And we'll take one more after Uh, that. Keith?
2: Keith Martin, Consortium of Universities for Global Health, thank you so much for what you're doing. We know we have a responsibility to protect without an obligation to act. My question is, what can we do right now, specifically, to be able to stop the killing given the urgency of trying to save lives on the ground right now in Syria, to be able to create the humanitarian corridor, the no-fly zone, What prescription can you give to us, and what we can do now to save lives in
6: Syria now?
2: Thank you,
0: Keith. Just hand the yes right here, right behind you.
6: Thank you, Eric Van Giesen, National Strategic Research Institute with the University of Nebraska. Um, I am just wondering how can we um, differentiate uh, instances when um, terrorists are hiding um, within health facilities um, versus when
7: the health facilities are, are not. Uh, harboring, you know, legitimate uh, threats to uh, okay. security.
0: Thank you. I'm going to start with Mark, and we're going to work our way down uh, the row here, and then I'll, I'll offer some closing remarks. Mark.
6: Sure. Well, I'll start off with the, the first question. Thank you very much, sir, for that. And I think I, I just have to respectfully disagree with you on our statement of uh, principles. It's uh, principles related to the protection of medical care provided by impartial humanitarian organizations during armed conflict, and it talks specifically about medical care provided during armed conflict as an activity that is fundamentally of neutral humanitarian non-combatant character and, and has descriptions of all the wounded and sick. And this was not aimed at any one organization. It was a statement of principles of how the Department of Defense conducts its, its business and and uh, respects that, uh, the neutrality of the medical community. So. I don't feel that uh, I agree that it was just for some, and it's all all medical facilities and and those uh, uh, health professionals who are working are, are what we are, are focusing on. So, thank you, sir. Jason,
5: um, maybe I'll answer the the last question a bit. Um, it's a really a twofold responsibility, right? It's a responsibility of combatants not to. Uh, to take over hospitals, to turn them into uh, uh, command and control centers, um, and it's also a responsibility of humanitarian organizations, medical groups, when possible, uh, to, to acknowledge when uh, when the places that we create to heal are being used for, for other purposes. But the key, key fact in all of this is that the responsibility of uh, combatants to, to issue a warning, even if a structure has lost uh, uh, its, its protection because it's being used for other means, it doesn't preclude the responsibility to look at questions of distinction, proportionality, uh, and warning. Uh, and that is something actually that is quite clearly addressed uh, uh, in, in all of the uh, international humanitarian law, but also in the, in the unilateral statement from the US government on the statement of principles. So, The burden does not somehow shift uh, in any way. It actually means very much with, uh, with the combatants on the ground, but also those who are looking to strike a, a facility that uh, has maybe lost its protection because of being used for other purposes.
3: Um, I think the two questions are related, uh, but I, I think the most important thing that at one point during the Syrian conflict, our government set some red lines and actually we uh, respected these red lines. One of them uh, about the Kobani, uh, when we said that ISIS will not take uh, Kobani and we actually assisted the uh, at that time the Kurdish group to uh, protect the city. And at one point, the Syrian regime attacked um, um, American troops or uh, allies in Hasakah, and we said, next time you'll attack us, we will attack you. And actually, that attack stopped. So I think enforcing certain red lines about Aleppo, which is much bigger than Srebrenica or Sarajevo, uh, is important. Uh, And I don't know how can we get this political will to act. Uh, in spite of all of our effort uh, in the Syrian-American diaspora, meeting with the White House, with, with the State Department, it doesn't look like it's moving them to action. And uh, I think there um, should be a move from analyzing and, uh, and so forth to making decisions. The main confine of the current policy on Syria is de-escalation. Um, I don't know if that works with Putin or Assad. Um, So protection of Aleppo, protection of civilians should be a priority, uh, which means sometimes you have to challenge certain bad actors. Secondly is engaging the Syrian-American community that is very resourceful, uh, that knows the landscape, uh, that is connected to the ground, that is the factor that will be moderating uh, Syria in the future. When we're talking about the fight against terrorism, it's not by bombing only. You fight terrorism, by people who are perceived as leaders, as moderate, and doctors in Syria are perceived as moderate leaders. And if you leave, if all of these doctors leave Syria, then you will have only left with the extremists, which that means you're going to bomb Syria for the next 20 years or so. So it's very important to preserve these human capitals, the natural leaders in Syria. These are the cream of the crop of the Syrian society. Engaging Syrian diaspora in policy making, listen to them carefully and take their um, advice, seriously whether it's related to issues related to terrorism or related to protection of healthcare and involve them in the post-crisis recovery and rebuilding. You cannot rebuild Syria and stabilize it without the involvement of Syrian doctors and Syrian American diaspora. Thank you.
0: Ben?
7: Um, I, I guess I would just very briefly say that, uh, for instance, I, I, I very much admire the DOD's commitment to Adhere to principles of international humanitarian law. Um, the, the challenge for international criminal law and humanitarian law as a whole, though, comes that is not just dependent on the United States um, adhering to it, but the UN Security Council and uh, all countries on the UN Security Council enforcing it. Uh, and adherence, on a good, while good on an individual level, uh, doesn't doesn't contru- doesn't completely uh, negate the erosion of principles by actors that refuse to adhere to it.
0: Thank you. Um, I'm gonna offer just a few closing remarks. Uh, First, I wanna thank our four speakers for uh, taking the time to be with us today and for preparing such careful, thoughtful remarks and for your leadership and your commitment on these issues um, over many years. Um, We're really in, in your debt for for all of the work that you've done. A few few, uh, impressions from this discussion. One is the nature of war, the complexity of the battlefield has changed. Uh, What we've seen, not just in Syria, but in in Yemen, in Libya, in Iraq, is that the coexistence of counter-terror, aerial bombardment campaigns, limited limited military presence on the ground, the intermixing of humanitarian organizations in that battlefield, uh, makes for an extremely a complex situation. Limited leverage, particularly over the Russians and the Saudis in terms of their aerial bombardment practices. If you could move the Russians and Saudis to change their practices, you could probably alter some of, the, some of what we've seen as indiscriminate and, tar- and targeted violence against civilians and the like. But we need to take account of how war has changed in these settings and how complex that battlefield has become. A second is what we've heard today are some substantial gains. SAMS has led the way with a coalition of partners in erecting a very extensive network of infrastructure of health in the midst of a terrible war that serves 2.5, 2.6 million people. That's a staggering achievement. It's one that builds off of the power of the constituency of the Syrian American community here. And that is quite new, quite impressive, quite important for us to acknowledge. The data that has been collected, what Ben emphasized, this remarkable initiative that's been undertaken, that to my mind is unprecedented. But it's been matched by efforts by MSF, by WHO, by IC, International Committee of the Red Cross, to document and, and bring forward in a systematic way that data to the Security Council. That's important. The DoD NGO dialogue has improved significantly, and it's by, through the and, and, it, and I think it's been through the trauma of what happened in Kunduz, the awareness of what's at stake, and the good faith efforts of of, of parties on both sides. And I think that needs acknowledgement um, and 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 need, needs to be commended. Uh, these are really tough decisions, and I think people have risen to the occasion and intensified those dialogues. I've heard that from both NGO and from DOD side. I've mentioned the power of the diaspora. Um, there are live options. Obviously, there's the question of what does the new administration do about this? Well, we don't know. It's too early to tell. But clearly, there have been signals around changes res- with, review- with respect to Syria. There's been signals with uh, changes with respect, very, uh, ambiguous and sometimes conflicting signals around Russia, around uh, counterterrorism, approaches and the like, and we need to watch and and be careful. But things are not fixed by any means, and it, and it um, it, it could carry us in any number of directions, but we need to acknowledge that. Safe zones, we've heard a lot about safe zones. We've heard a lot about special representatives, new mechanisms, coming back to the International Criminal Court. All of those issues are highly problematic for the reasons that we heard today, but they're not going away. There will continue to be deliberations around what kind of accountability mechanisms can work under these political circumstances. We're not done with that debate, nor are we done with the Safe Zone um, debate, uh, and the debate of what will this next administration see as opportunity or acknowledge as the gravity of the situation. And I think it's very important that the type of stories that all of you are t- have told us today be continue, continue to be told in a live and coherent way in this next period in which uh, thinking and des- deliberations on these issues are going to move forward. The last thing I'd say is we haven't talked at all about Mosul, we haven't talked about ISIS, we haven't talked, this is an era of, what Aleppo has shown us is an era of, of a tragic, large urban environments uh, being decimated uh, on a scale that is, was unimaginable just a short while ago. And we now have the active issue around Mosul. And we have similar predicaments in Yemen uh, and and elsewhere. And and these are challenges that that we need to think about uh, very hard uh, in this next period. And and maybe our next session will focus on those. Those are complex unto themselves.